Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Our guest today for Spirit in Action is Iris Gravel. Iris writes vividly of her lived experience of transitioning as a family to a life of balance and integrity in her book, Hiking Naked. Through experimentation, living on the edge, and discernment, Iris finds her way forward to a more centered and settled life. Among the other books Iris has written are Bounty and Hands at Work, and she's presented classes and workshops on journaling as meditation and From the Blank Page to the Divine. Iris joins us in person today in Toledo before a live audience at the 2018 Friends General Conference gathering. Iris, thank you so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. It's my pleasure. I also have the pleasure of a co-host today. Catherine Thomas has done some interviewing for Northern Spirit Radio before. We'll be doing much more in the future. Thanks so much for joining me, Catherine. Thank you, Mark. I'm honored to be here with you. This is not the first time I've had Iris on Spirit in Action. She's a writer and a promoter. She actually wears a number of hats, I think. We have her here today because of the two latest books that she's put out, but also because this program has been running over the radio on Lopez Island for some 10 years. Who on Lopez Island is actually connected with the radio station that's part of the Friends Meeting? One of our regular members, Ron Metcalf, was on the board of our low-frequency community radio station, KLOI, and when he started to hear this program, he wanted to have that available to people on Lopez and through our community radio station. So he was the initial link. And there were a number of us in the meeting who were familiar with Spirit in Action and Song of the Soul. So we were happy to have a wider audience on Lopez become familiar with your programs. And the book that you've just written that I just finished reading, Hiking Naked, A Quaker Woman's Search for Balance, includes a little bit of Lopez Island, but it's mainly set elsewhere. So we're going to be touching on Lopez, and I want to say hi to all my friends and family. I consider you family on Lopez Island. Thanks so much for joining us. And of course, you're hearing this all over the United States, wherever you're hearing it, hopefully on the radio. Just remember that I'm happy to hear your ideas about programs, people who are doing the work of healing the world, of finding a better way forward. But Iris, let's get right into hiking naked. (laughs) So the first question that, of course, comes to mind is, are you a nudist? (laughs) No, not at all. And as I tell people, the title, Hiking Naked, is mostly a metaphor. The first chapter is entitled Hiking Naked, and there it becomes obvious just how much of a a metaphor it is. But there was some naked hiking by my husband, not by me. So you're saying you're more bashful than he is. (laughs) Well, he um, stripped down to his hiking boots and wool socks when we were hiking a pretty rigorous trail, Um, as a way to spur me on to get to the summit of this trail. And it's just an indication of his sense of humor and his 
thoughtfulness and supportiveness that uh, he demonstrated on that hike in a really unique way. But I remained clothed on that hike. Not everyone would feel that as an enticement. (laughs) Let's say, how was it motivational to you? Oh, just the sweet humor of it was the main thing. It was not at all an amorous moment. We were both hot and sweaty and tired and dusty, but it just broke the tension that I was feeling on a very strenuous hike that gained 5,000 feet of elevation in five miles and was really more than I had bargained for. And it just relieved that tension that I was feeling and desire to just be finished with this hike. Well, I'd like to ask about the publisher of the book, Homebound Publications. Right, right. How is it that they turned out to be the publishing company that wanted to help you out with this book? It was a very fortunate happenstance. I had completed the manuscript, and I was seeking publication. I had self-published two other books, and I really wanted to try finding a publisher for this book. I queried some agents, received lovely rejection letters from them, and I came to the conclusion that this manuscript, it's a memoir, it's what some people refer to as a quiet memoir, that it would be of more interest probably to a small press than a a large one. So then I started uh, researching small presses, and uh, Poets and Writers Magazine has a database for small presses, one that came up was Homebound Publications. And when I read the description of this press, it seemed like a really good fit. Their tagline is assuring that the mainstream isn't the only stream, which I liked right away. And they focus on what they call contemplative literature. That rang true for what I knew my writing was like. And they also have an emphasis on nature writing. So I thought that just seemed like the place that would be the best home. And they didn't require an agent. They accepted unsolicited manuscripts. So I started through those steps and turned out it has been a really good combination. In the promotion for the book, it says, Hiking Naked is a blend of Cheryl Strayed's Wild and Henry David Thoreau's Walden that chronicles Iris's spiritual search for meaningful work. As you detail in the book, you were working as a nurse, public health nurse, before that. So somewhere that struck you as it wasn't meaningful work. Mm, Right. To some people, that's going to feel off kilter. Tell us about your experience with working as a nurse. It took me quite by surprise when I started to recognize I wasn't feeling called to that work, which I had felt strongly from the the very beginning of my nursing career, even though at that time I wasn't familiar with that language. But I did have a strong sense that this was the work I was meant to do. And I felt great passion for it. When I graduated from nursing school, I worked in a surgical intensive care unit at Indiana University Hospital, and I chose that because it was a place that I could provide total patient care like we had done in nursing school. I would be assigned to one or two patients, and I did everything for those one or two patients. I really wanted to have that, you know, work with the whole person and their family, and 
no surprise, that was quite demanding work. That unit uh, was where open-heart patients went immediately after open-heart surgery. People who had radical neck surgery for cancer were cared for there. And then just other kinds of surgical procedures that had some kind of complication. So people were really sick when they came to us. As I write in Hiking Naked, when things went well there, they went very well. And when they went bad, it was really bad. And after about a year of that, I began to feel the stress of, one, the unpredictability of what was going to happen with people, and then just so much attention on machinery. Many people were on ventilators and IVs and multiple tubes and drains, and many of the patients were unconscious while they were in intensive care. So the interactions that I had were mostly with family, and that was back in the days when they could only come in for about 10 minutes every hour. So that was my beginning in my nursing career. And then over the next 10 years or so, I kind of cycled around through different areas of nursing, home health nursing. I worked in hospice care. I worked as the health coordinator in a child care program for abused children. And then finally in public health, which is where I spent most of my career mostly working with women who had high-risk pregnancies and their newborns. So they were all demanding, you know, stressful situations and also rewarding. There's an intimacy that you have when you're providing care like that. And that was quite rewarding, but it also had a lot of stresses. And when I first graduated from nursing school, the whole idea of burnout was just coming into public awareness and particularly burnout among nurses and others in the helping professions. And I thought, well, that will never happen to me because I just love this so much. And then I started to realize that, you know, I just wasn't feeling that same kind of commitment and passion. I started having a lot of doubts about was I walking away from a leading? Was I not being faithful? So that was quite distressing to me. Well, I think of nurses, I think of science, facts, hard facts, I guess. But obviously you are also open to other considerations of how to be in the world. Could you talk about your journey along those lines? I understand you were raised Lutheran, and now you're Quaker. How did that go for you? I was raised in the Lutheran Church, and I think as a child and a teenager, I was especially drawn to the ritual of that religious tradition. Again, I didn't have the language for it, but there was something that really compelled me and a sense of a belief in God that I really yearned to be in the presence of other people who shared that belief and to participate in rituals that, you know, were expressions of of that belief. And then, not unlike many people in their 20s, I really started to have some questions about my experience that some of the people that I attended church with, it seemed that their religion, their faith, their spirituality was just a Sunday morning event. And for me, you know, it was my work, my hopes and dreams, that was all, and my spirituality were all of the same cloth, and it wasn't just something that turned on and off on Sunday morning. And I just found I had a lot of questions, and 
the churches that I attended early in my life didn't seem like safe places to ask the questions. They offered a lot of answers, and I didn't feel that they were very interested in in hearing my questions, let alone wrestling along with me on the questions that I had. In my mid-20s, I learned about an intentional community in southern Indiana where I was living. There were three couples. Let's see, four of the six people in those couples were ordained United Methodist ministers. They wanted the inner city to be their parish and to do work in the inner city that really reflected the values and the beliefs of Christianity and of their understanding of Jesus' message for the world. And so I got to know them and started to worship with them and, you know, in a house church, very informal, quite different from the ritual that I had found in the Lutheran church. But it's where I really felt a spiritual home and where I felt that people understood that for me, my work did have a spiritual component to it and that I was really striving to do work that I was being called to. And then we moved from there. I met my husband there. We married, moved to Seattle, and we started looking for a church community. We visited a number of churches, and we knew that we wouldn't find something just like that community that we had left, but we were exploring, and we had a list of places we wanted to visit, and the Quaker meeting was on the list. So the short story that I tell is of how we ended up among friends was that we were on our way to the Episcopal Church, and we missed the bus, and we discovered that we could still get a bus that would get us to the Quaker meeting, and then we never made it to the Episcopal Church or any other church after that. We had found our home, so there was a little bit more to it than that, but I'd like to give that as a short answer. One of the reasons I'm really glad that Catherine asked that question is because It seems that your search for balance in your work has everything to do with your deep spirituality. You said that the Lutherans or the other communities you grew up around were not very receptive to questioning, that they had answers, and you just kind of have to fit with those answers, I think. When you made the decision that you had to look for something else, and I I guess you didn't exactly make it as a firm decision. It was kind of like, well, maybe I'll take a year and try something weird. And you did go to weird (laughs) by the society's standards. That when you made that decision, part of it was, it wasn't that you left nursing, it's somehow nursing left you. It becomes more and more bureaucratic, more and more profit, you know, statistics focused and less people focused. When that question came up and you said, okay, I've got this well-paying job as a nurse, and you told your husband that says, you know, I don't really know if this is where I'm supposed to be. Maybe I should do something different. Wasn't his first question to you, are you crazy? (laughs) Actually, no, it wasn't his question. It was my question to myself. So we had rented this cabin for a month the month of July, and I could arrange my work schedule so that I could spend much of the month there, but I did have to go back to my public health nursing job for a few days partway through the month. My husband worked for a school, and so he was on summer break, and the kids were on break. Then 10 year, or 11-year-old twin son and daughter so I drove back, which was about a four-hour drive after the 
two and a half hour boat trip to get back to a road. And along the way, um, I did have what I came to realize later was a mystical experience that I did have a clear sense that we were being called to live in that little village of Stahican, not permanently maybe, but for some period of time. And that was when, as I was becoming aware of that possibility and thinking about it, I was both excited and asking myself, are you crazy? And then I I went home and went to work for several days, and I wrote a letter to my husband and the kids who were back in Stahican and uh, sent it to the you know general delivery at the little post office there with a letter describing this awareness I had had and, and what did they think about it. And then when I returned, it turned out that they were all for it, except my daughter said just for one year. Because eighth grade is a big deal, of right, course. Right, right. The story resonates with me, Iris. And folks, we are speaking with Iris Gravel, who's author of a book, Hiking Naked, And it's about learning your transitions, balance, searching, choosing what you do with your life. And it resonates with me, Iris, because I had a similar experience. Back in 1999, I was part of a Friendly Folk Dancer tour, Quaker International Peace Ministry, if you will. And we went to New Zealand. And when I was on the plane coming back to Wisconsin to my work as a computer programmer consultant, which I'd always done just fine but had no soul in it, I felt the anxiety going up. It felt to me like there's something very wrong. And having been out of the water for a while, going back into that boiling water was not good for me. And so I had resolved by the end of that week to make a change. It still took five more years before... I found my way forward with Northern Spirit Radio. So how did your progress go? How did you resolve? I mean, you had the question, you had the desire, you had some vision of something. Did you just discuss it in family? Was that when you had a clearness committee? Is that where you just went and sat in worship and meditation for hours? How did you sort out that you were even going to take a year? All of the above. <laughs> and thank you for telling me your story, Mark. I didn't know that. And um, I have heard you know similar things from people as I've been talking about this book. When I went back to Stahican while we were on that vacation, and the family talked about this idea, we, we thought, well, we would take a year to try to get things in a little bit better order. And we, it would mean renting out our house and giving some attention to our finances so we could manage for some period of time without our regular income. And we also did ask our meeting, Bellingham Friends meeting, for a clearness committee. We were feeling pretty clear that this was what we were to do, but we wanted to test that out with people in our meeting who we trusted. And so we met with a clearness committee a number of times and for listeners who don't know about that Quaker practice, it's a time of people coming together in a supportive way and just helping the focus person or couple, as in our case, you know, look at whatever it is they're wrestling with and ask questions that only that person or that couple can answer. But being those supportive listening presences and that process did help us to feel just that much more committed to taking this time. 
And then we spent the time sorting out how we were going to make this move and figuring out housing in Stahican and we knew we would need to do some kind of work, and we both found work for me working in a bakery and my husband driving a shuttle bus for one of the lodging establishments, and just getting things in order to make that move. We did think it would be for a year. That was what our daughter had said, although I secretly hoped that we could go for two years because my kids would be going into the seventh grade when we moved there and the school went through the eighth grade. And I thought that would be a nice way to finish up their elementary years. But we were willing to do that for one year if that made the most sense. And I knew that I wanted to be intentional about using that time to, one, just experience the beauty and the wonder of that wilderness landscape, and also to really sit with trying to get clear about what it was I was supposed to be doing in my life. Was I to continue in nursing or do something very different? I was just trying to stay open and structured my time to have time for writing, silence, and trying out some different creative expressions that I felt I had never had time for. Stahican is quite small. I understand. I'm wondering if you would describe it for our audience. Sure. The North Cascades divide the state of Washington. They run north-south and so divide the state, uh, the east side and the west side. And Stahican is in the North Cascades. It has like one foot in the east side of the mountains and one foot in the west side of the mountains. And it's a tiny village of 80 to 85-year-round residents that sits at the very end of a 55-mile-long lake, Lake Chelan. And there's a boat that leaves from the town of Chelan to go to Stahican. There's a road that goes 25 miles up the lake, and then after that, there is no road. And you can pick up the boat at the halfway point which is what we usually did to get there, was to park our car in a parking lot there for people going to Stahican. And uh, we took the ferry, passenger-only ferry, about two and a half hours to the end of the lake, which is Stahican. Not only did the roads not get to Stahican, but neither did telephones. There's no television. And back then, and we were there 1994 to 1996, There was no internet. Internet really wasn't very present at that time anywhere, but there definitely wasn't any internet in Stahican at that time. All the communication was by mail. The North Cascades National Park surrounds the valley, so there was an office for uh, North Cascades National Park, and they did have a one-way satellite telephone for outgoing calls only that was at the public laundry, at the boat landing. So if if there was some kind of an emergency or you really needed to get a hold of someone urgently, you would need to go to that outdoor public telephone, and it, it was the classic satellite delay to make your phone call. There's um, five miles of paved road in Stahican, and then on either side of the Stahican River, there's about another three to four miles of gravel road. Then beyond that, it's wilderness and it's just trails into the mountains. We would order our groceries by mail, write out a grocery list, 
and enclose a blank check, put it in the mail, send it to the Safeway store at the other end of the lake. And a few days later, our groceries would arrive along with a receipt for how much they cost and sometimes a note from the person who got the order together telling us something they had substituted. So that was, you know, a very different way of grocery shopping. I've got a quote from the book that I want to share and see what else you have to say about it, having to do with community. You write, In Stahican, I couldn't surround myself only with people who looked at the world as I did. The times that we're experiencing now are polarized. You were right there in close proximity to people who you knew weren't in agreement with you on certain issues, but you all had to work together to get along. Can you talk about that? Yes. One of the drawbacks that I saw to having this time in Stahican was that it's not an ethnically diverse community at all. It's all white folks. And I had yearned for something more diverse for my children. And we had even talked about at some point all living in another country just to have that experience. But Stahican clearly seemed to be the place for us to go And I soon realized that there was quite the diversity of thought among those 85 residents, and that unlike when I lived in Bellingham and Seattle and could surround myself with people who I knew shared very similar views, and that I could go through my life never encountering someone who had quite divergent views from mine, that I couldn't do that in Stahican. We were way too interdependent. If you had any kind of problem with equipment or your pump or getting something taken care of, we had each other to rely on. And, you know, you had to figure out a way to set those differences aside. Unfortunately, it wasn't part of the culture there to really talk through those things. We just kind of ignored some of those differences. But I also sensed a genuine, deep love and care that people had for each other, even though we knew that there were significant differences. And and there, like any place, have been plenty of conflicts and feuds and disagreements. But when it comes down to people being in need, we all rallied (laughs) together And I think it did teach me and my family some important lessons about listening beyond words and finding the places where we do share values and beliefs and interests. And folks, you're listening to Spirit in Action, a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, when you want to find all things Northern Spirit Radio, you go to northernspiritradio.org. That's O-R-G like an organic, not commercial. On that site, you'll find links to Iris Gravel, her book. You'll be able to trace all of this. I've had her on the program before, too. Hands at Work is a book that I talked to her about several years ago. On that site, you'll also find a place to post comments. We really do love two-way communication, and we like people to post comments when you visit. There's also a donate button. That's how this full-time work is supported. It's not by corporations. And it's not by government, it's because the listeners value what we're doing. So please click donate when you come. Even more important, like KLOI on Lopez Island, 
There's community radio stations all across this nation that are providing a local voice, which otherwise it just won't be heard. Six corporations control 90% plus of our media. It makes all the difference when you support a local voice. So do that first. That's more important than supporting Northern Spirit Radio. It's just crucial to support local voice. Again, Iris Gravel is here. She lives on Lopez Island, which is one of the San Juan Islands off the coast of Washington State. We're talking about her book, Hiking Naked, A Quaker Woman's Search for Balance, which explores the road that actually got her to Lopez uh, from Bellingham and other cities. Now, you're talking about Stahican, and I had a hard time imagining that they didn't have phones in 1992, that they couldn't get phones all the way to you. And also shortwave radio, I was sure, was a feasible option at that time. So somehow you're cut off, and that makes a big difference. When I was talking about my own experience about leaving New Zealand coming home, I had this experience of going into the broiling mass of American society. My work felt to me like I was in hot water not because I was having difficulties, but because it was too turbulent. You're searching for balance, and it's really hard to do when there's so many people who want to have your ear. Were your ears safe from nagging voices when you were in Stahican? Oh, I wish. (laughs) Those voices follow you wherever you go, I discovered, because they were the ones inside of me and uh, voices from my past of judgment and criticism. But, you know, I carry enough doubts and questions in my own mind that go with me wherever I do. What was different in Stahican was I made time and space to really attend to those voices and to listen for the voice of the divine. So it was a lesson for me that retreating, so to speak, there's really no escaping those questions. They get into the luggage and follow you right along. But that was what I was there to do also. As you mentioned in the book, Stahican means the way through. Right. Did you know that before you made that move? Yes. It's one of the first things that you learn about Stahican if you visit It's a Coast Salish word that does mean the way through, and in earlier times, that was that path through the North Cascades to go east and west by Coast Salish and Skagit Indians that would, you know, go east and west to trade and to live at different times of the year. So it's part of the tourism advertising to let people know what that word means and and hopefully to help people understand how to pronounce it because it doesn't look immediately evident how to how to pronounce it it was only through our time there and really through writing my book that I came to understand just how true that name was for what was happening in my life you mentioned that during your time there you were listening for the divine voice What did you hear? I'm hesitating a bit because um, it wasn't so much hearing, even though we use that word voice. Uh, This is one of the problems with language when trying to talk about something that's so ineffable and mysterious. But just like the drive across the mountains that I described, I didn't really hear a voice saying, go to Stahican, but I had a sense of a presence and 
you know, that idea was a part of that sense of the presence. And I had other experiences like that in Stahican. One that has been the most profound for me was a day that I was taking a walk. The house that we rented during the school year was at the very end of one of those gravel roads. And there was a path behind the house that went to a moss-covered rock and kind of looked like a, a big pitcher's mound. And we had a cat named Boris, and Boris would go along with me on walks. And so we named that spot Boris's Bluff, and it was a place I often walked to. And one day I had gone to Boris's Bluff with Boris, and we were sitting on this rock. It was a warm day. And as I looked around, it's just forest and mountains going straight up, you know, 360 degrees around me. You really can't see much of anything except, you know, a little patch of sky. And I write about how it felt as though, you know, the world ended right there. And I don't mean that in a disastrous way, but just like, you know, this is, this is it. This is the only thing right here. And then I had a sense that I wasn't alone. And it was that sense of a presence and then what came to me was a realization that I wasn't alone and I was connected to everything, which didn't make any sense given how remote, <laughs> what a remote spot I was in and, and that I couldn't see anything else and nobody else was with me. But I did have that sense of connection with all beings and that led to my recognizing that, you know, I have a part to play in this universe, but that it's not up to me alone. And that I had a sense of both being very small and great, <laughs> a smallness and a greatness simultaneously. And I don't mean that greatness in a way of I was a great person, but just how valuable we all are and how small <laughs> we are as well. So I had some experiences like that, but that one was especially profound and especially healing for me, having gone through many days of journaling and praying and crying and questioning about, am I doing the right thing? Is what I'm doing worthwhile? And just having a lot of those burdens lifted, literally felt lifted during that moment. After the 1960s, there came the 1970s, and there were a lot of people who were involved in the Back to the Land movement, which involves stepping out of the mainstream, going into other cultures. Your event took place in the early 1990s, so, you know, 20 years later. So it's, this is not just your typical Back to the Land type thing, although you did get rooted, I mean, working as a baker, how very tactile and in control instead of just handing it all over to machines. Part of my question is, how much of this was a thirst for being part of Back to Land? How much of it was just a thirst to be away from the boiling water? And how much of it was a search for the community where you felt like you fit best? Those are good analogies, and certainly all of those were factors. A big part of it was to just take a break from this work that I had dedicated myself to for 20 years. And for the 10 years that my husband and I vacationed in Stahican, every time we would, at some point, 
during a hike, we would talk about, oh, wouldn't it be great to live here? And on the hike out, we would talk about how wonderful that would be and how we would do that. And then, you know, it would be time if we were doing an out and back trail, then on the way back, we'd always talk ourselves out of it. And I had some big disappointments in my work that helped me to feel that when we we would have those conversations during our vacations, on the way back, I would always say, I can't leave my work. I love it. I wouldn't be able to do that kind of work in Stahican. You know, I just don't want to leave that. But then there, there were some big disappointments and, and challenges in my work that really helped me to be able to let go and feel like I could take a break from this. So there was a part of that. Uh, there, I knew there would be no work there as a nurse. There's no health care. There were a couple of EMTs with the Park Service, but there would be no nursing job. And I had always fantasized about working in a bakery because I did do home baking. And so I had, I thought that would be a great opportunity there. And then there was also a part of just really wanting to be in that environment Whenever we vacationed there, I always felt refreshed, and I cherished the solitude, the majesty of these mountains and the river, and how untouched so much of it was once you got outside of the little village at the head of the lake. I, for a long time, had felt that there was some part of me that was really connected to the mountains in a way that I couldn't understand, because I grew up in the Midwest and the plains. But the first time I ever visited the mountains, I had that sense of coming home or that that was home. So being in that kind of place was a big attraction for me to feel like I would have that feeling of home. And then having vacationed in Stahican for so many years, uh, it's a small enough place that if you show up there, you know, two or three times, people know who you are. And we went back every year for 10 years. And then somewhere along the line, we started going in the wintertime as well for a short vacation. So people got to know us and we got to know them. And so it was like going to a community. And I wanted to experience that sense of community too. Both my husband and I had grown up in small towns and then we had lived in cities, but we knew what that small town life was like, and we wanted to see what that was like and get to know these people better that had been so welcoming to us over the years. So while you were there, you also experienced some natural events that are less than picturesque trips and hiking, including bear encounters, wildfires, storms. What was it like to experience that part of living there? It's hard for me to conjure up what the feelings were really like. Clearly, we survived all those things. (laughs) But in writing this book, I really had to try to put myself back in those times and those places and recreate in my mind what those experiences were like. Overall, putting those all together, they were just these frequent reminders of my lack of control. (laughs) And I went there thinking you know, searching for, I wanted to have more control in my life and and to have that sense of security that I could somehow prevent bad things from happening, even though I had certainly learned in my nursing work that 
you can't necessarily keep bad things from happening. So when these hard things happen in Stahican, like being threatened by a forest fire and the potential of being evacuated and a flood that washed away our road and left us stranded for three days, you know, those were pretty powerful lessons for me that about having faith and trusting in my neighbors and in in the divine and just being aware that there's something beyond me that really is in control. The book, Hiking Naked, Quaker Woman's Search for Balance by Iris Gravel. In the book, Iris, we learn a lot about your spiritual meandering, your spiritual reflection. We don't learn a lot of the details of the pros and cons that you might call the practical side, the side that our society usually measures. So how much of a pay cut did you take (laughs) and how many fewer movies your kids got to see, which you could rate as a good or a bad, but, you know, our society counts things. You've been living on Lopez, and Lopez does have phones. They have a wonderful radio station, KLOI. They they have a number of things that you didn't have in Stahican. How do you now think about those pros and cons? You know, how many people's lives you're going to save At a bakery, you may save some disappointment because you (laughs) hand out a caramel roll or whatever it is. You may make people happy and and smile, but you're not going to be saving lives like you were doing in nursing. How do you rate now those pros and cons of society from when when you were living in Bellingham elsewhere versus Stahican and now Lopez Island? I think about, and we would get questions from people about what we would miss or what we would be giving up to go to Stahican. That was a common question. You know, you're going to have to give up so much. And I've never thought of it as giving up. All of those things that you mentioned, the movies and the telephones, those didn't feel like sacrifices. Uh, We were really wanting to have an experience of a simpler life, a simpler lifestyle. And we recognized that it was really hard for us to do that voluntarily when we were in the city where all those activities and amenities were available. It was a little harder to hold on to the idea of a a more simple lifestyle. And there, you know, that was the way it was. And a lot of the community had created ways to work around that. I mean, we would send each other postcards through the post office to say, do you want to come over for dinner Thursday night? Because you couldn't just call somebody up. Or there were lots of conversations that happened in the middle of the road as people were passing each other to go get their mail or pick somebody up from the boat. And, you know, there were those systems that were in place that worked so that those didn't seem like sacrifices. When we moved to Lopez, I I entertained for a while the thought of not having a telephone. And I realized that that just wasn't going to work because that community didn't have those alternative ways of communicating in place, and it would just be a real pain. So that was part of what we were striving for, and it's part of what attracted us to Lopez as well, is that living on an island that's served by a ferry, that in itself just limits access to a lot of things that I don't find all that fulfilling, and um, having easier access to the natural world, and times of quiet 
is what's more important to me, and that's definitely easier to do when when you're living in a place where it's not so ever present. Although it is easy still to get, I mean, you know, we have internet just like everybody else and all the things that go along with that. And we live in a community that is run primarily by volunteers. We don't have a local government, so there are plenty of volunteer opportunities. And it actually requires that people, you know, step up and and do things for the community. And our Quaker meeting, there are plenty of opportunities there to serve and so, you know, what seems like a simple, quiet life on an island can be just as, well, I shouldn't say just as busy because we don't have nearly the background busyness going on. But still, you know, that you can just as easily get caught up in the complexities of life anywhere you go. And it takes discipline no matter where you are. But I do find it easier in a smaller, quieter place. So you live on Lopez Island now. You stayed in Stahican two years. Right. How did you know when it was time to move on? Well, as I said, when we first went, our daughter said just for one year. So she and her twin brother were in the seventh grade. They had been in school just a few weeks in the seventh grade, and they came home one day, and our daughter said, now next year, when we're eighth graders, we get to publish the newspaper, and we get to watch the kids on the playground. And so she had made a shift. That was her way of telling us she was fine with staying another year. And so that would have really been our hope in the first place, is that they could complete the and graduate from that little one-room school. But there was no high school there, and people who, for whom Stahican is their home, who have children, uh, when they get to that age, some of the options are to homeschool for high school, to send kids to a boarding school or to a public school down Lake, as we called it, which was the other end of Lake Chelan. Some families where there were two parents, one parent and the child or children would go to another town where there was a high school and another parent would stay in Stahican and tend the, the home there. So, you know, those were all variations that we knew about, and none of those really appealed to us. So we did have a house in Bellingham and that we had rented out and had always intended to go back there. But after two years of the kids being in a school with 10 students and being in this very small community, the thought of going back to Bellingham with a population at that time of around 50,000 seemed like bigger than we wanted. And they would have been going to a high school with about 1,300 students, and that didn't appeal to them. And we had longtime friends, capital F and small F friends on Lopez Island we had visited many times. And so we started thinking about that as a possible next step that would offer a lot of the characteristics and qualities that we loved about Stahican, but had a high school and and was closer to family and you know, just easier to get to family and, and some very long-time friendships. And there was a Quaker worship group on Lopez Island as well. But the fact that there was no high school in Stahican was really what was the major decision to leave when we did. And I, by that time, too, we were all 
we were feeling the effects of that remoteness just in terms of having easy access to some of the other things in our lives and people in our lives that we wanted to have a little easier time getting to or being involved in. So that all coincided. I want to sort out the last few threads, Iris, so that people can leave this discussion of hiking naked with maybe pointers that are helpful to them. Not everyone's going to go to Stahican, but having found clearness in your way forward, you know, you've got very different work now than you used to do, and you've had it for more than 20 years. Evidently, you're not suffering from burnout now. Evidently, you found something that nurtures your soul, that you feel a sense of place and identity that works. For someone who can't go to Stahican, what are the kind of things that you think are helpful in lives of the average American that might help them to plug into where their sense of balance is? Well, first of all, I would say don't necessarily assume you can't go away to whatever place might speak to you. I never would have imagined that we would do that. And like I said, for 10 years, we talked about it theoretically and and always convinced ourselves that, that we couldn't do that. And as I've been talking about this book with people, I've heard from many people stories of places that people have gone or things that they have done to really just take a step back for some amount of time from what had come to feel like it wasn't really the direction that they were wanting to go. And opportunities come along that you may think there's no way you could do it and then doors open. I highly value the lessons I learned in Stahican about being in nature, being in the mountains, in the forest, you know, just having that closeness to these places that I have no control over and the lessons that I can learn there. And then mostly it's just taking that time to quiet and ground and center myself and for us to do that as a family, for my husband and I to do that as a couple, to really get in touch with that divine presence and that wisdom that I know I can access better when I quiet myself. And that you can do almost anywhere. How? (laughs) Well, it certainly does take some, some discipline to turn things off and place yourself in a spot that you don't have so many distractions. And even just for a short period of time, it doesn't have to be two years or two hours, but just having those regular times of centering and opening yourself, being willing to hear that wisdom, I think is is so valuable, and we underestimate the importance of that. And it's so easy for me to forget about it and be at the end of the day and realize, oh my gosh, I've just been going nonstop. So I'm not saying that it's easy, but I know that for me, it's an effective and an important way to stay connected to that spirit that I was feeling really disconnected from when we made this move. Well, Iris, our conversation has to come to an end, but as you write towards the end of your book, your process of finding balance doesn't come to an end. It's an ongoing process. That's right. (laughs) Yes, it I've learned that there is this ongoing discernment I need to be doing, and 
one thing that's different is, for some reason, I had the idea that once you were called to something, that that was it. And I felt like I was all set with that with nursing. And when it didn't feel that way anymore, it was quite unsettling for me. And now I realize that it should have been obvious, but we may get many callings in life. And so now I'm really grateful that I've been led to write. And I'm kind of excited to think that, well, maybe there'll be something else that I'll be called to. It's been wonderful to be here with you. We've been sitting together at the Friends General Conference gathering, which is an annual Quaker gathering I go to this year in Toledo, Ohio, next year in Grinnell, Iowa, and who knows where it'll be the year after. But it's so wonderful to meet you in face-to-face, which I've only done, I think, one other time, separated by miles, but not by a lack of connection and concern. I do want to mention your book, Bounty. We're not going to discuss that today, but that you wrote for. I also did your I did an interview with you about your book, Hands at Work, where you wrote the text to accompany really delicious photos. And the photos in Bounty are particularly delicious because so many of them are of food and of the local growing, really a local agriculture that you have there on Lopez Island, along with all the recipes for them. I've got some good ones to try out. There's so many ways in which you bring richness to the world while in your home territory, the the earth in which you can grow. I'm thankful for your reflections in Hiking Naked, a Quaker woman's search for balance, and I'm thankful that you took the time in this really busy week here in Toledo at the Friends General Conference gathering to talk to us. Thank you so much, Iris. You're very welcome, and thank you both. It's been a real pleasure to be here with you and to uh, take time from this busy week to chat. Thanks for your thoughtful questions. And a thank you from me to Iris, and a thank you to Mark for letting me uh, accompany him today. And folks, we will be back again next week with Spirit in Action, myself and Catherine Thomas, and a number of other people who are sharing broadcasting responsibilities for Northern Spirit Radio. See you next week. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh